The True Tone Lounge podcast features audio-only versions of our video interviews. To view those, please visit truetonelounge.com or our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash truetonefx. Childs and welcome to the True Tone Lounge. Today's guest is one of the most versatile and hardest working guitar players in Nashville. You might find him on a Carrie Underwood session followed by a Cheap Trick session and then on the weekend he might be out on tour with Faith Hill and Tim McGraw. He is one of the consummate sidemen and session guitarists who truly knows the art of supporting the song and the artist instead of putting the spotlight on himself, Mr. Jerry McPherson. Hey. So Jerry, tell me, how did you originally pick up the guitar? By the neck. Uh, I yes. so uh, I grew up in Texas, and my stock line is: had I grown up, it would have been in Texas, but I squandered the opportunity. But uh, I was born and raised in in Dallas, and my mom played piano and organ at the church, and so we were at the church all the time. And uh, so I, I tried to learn to play piano because I grew up with a Hammond B three in the house. It sounded amazing, you know, with the big Leslie and everything. Yeah. And I never connected with the keyboard. Just kind of like the layout of it or something. It's like whoever invented the piano, it's like he, he obviously mainly had white keys to deal with. And then he was like, hand me some of those black keys. And he's all right, I need some more white keys. And give me two more black keys. And there, that ought to be it. I never could wrap my head around, the, you know, the layout of it. And then I thought, well, the guitar's a little bit more laid up pretty well. They missed yeah. it on two strings, but everything else is pretty much, <laughs> yeah, you know. Because of the weird, you know, where else <laughs> yeah. you go, oh, and now we're going to do a third. Yeah, and yeah. so, yeah, they got four out of six, right? Yeah. Uh, so I ended up with guitar, and, uh, you know, my, really the way I ended up picking up guitar, my older brother Rick got an acoustic guitar uh, for Christmas. And, and in fact, I've, he got a guitar and an instruction book, and I found one of those instruction books on eBay. Auto. Can I show it to you real quick? Sure. <laughs> All right, sorry. Yeah, I, I found this, and it's basically a chord book, and it's got some theory and stuff in it. Huh? And I just gobbled this thing. Here, I'll, I'll do a Ken Burns. <laughs> <laughs> Live Ken Burns <laughs> movement there. But uh, I ended up learning all these chords and stuff and felt like I was getting pretty good and was able to start hearing stuff on records. It's like, hey, yeah. that's that chord progression or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I had a, a really terrible acoustic that had belonged to my brother, uh, you know, because we, we didn't have a lot of money. And so anytime you get an instrument in, in that pay grade, it's going to be a terrible instrument. So after that, I, I ended up getting a terrible five-string banjo. My dad fancied me being able to play the Beverly Hillbillies theme. Yeah. Never got there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I took lessons for it. And uh, there in Dallas, it was a mall, big town shopping center. And there was a music store. And there was an uh, instructional studio, you know, instruction studio above it. Mm -hmm. So uh, I would, you know, go and you had to wait 
for the next student to come downstairs, and when you heard, heard somebody come downstairs, then you would head up with your banjo, you know. And I would sit in that music store, and, you know, I didn't, I wasn't into the banjo. I, I liked rock, and banjos, come to find out, don't rock. And neither bad acoustic guitars, they don't rock, you know. Uh, and my mom also got me a ukulele, and it, yeah. come to find, it didn't rock either. Didn't. So I would go into this music store to wait my turn to get a banjo lesson, and there was this guy, Randy Adams, and he's, he's still around. He does uh, live recording. He's done a lot of famous live recordings around the world. But Randy Adams, he worked at the music store, and he would take like an SG or something, and uh, the Boston Fuzz, remember those little guys? Yeah. That clip into the guitar? Yeah. I'd be sitting in the music store with my, with my banjo, and he would, boop, 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 you know, and I was just like, <laughs> Why am I? Why do I have this banjo? I didn't yeah. even have a case for it, so it's kind of like I have a banjo, you know, which made it even more embarrassing. Made it more, even more hillbilly. <laughs> yeah, yes, with a banjo. But we a did case. have shoes. Uh, yes. So I took, I, I, you know, I, I took banjo lessons for a while, um, and then the big turning point was my dad, Tex McPherson. We lived in Texas. His name was Tex. That I was, love it. Yeah. He was a car salesman, used car salesman, and he had uh, taken in on trade for a car. I'll never forget, I can still see the pickup truck that he pulled up in front of the house. It was uh, a Gibson SG, 60s Gibson SG, a Fender Super Reverb, a Showman cabinet, big, like, 215s or something ridiculous. Yeah. Oh, it may have been 12s. Um, and a Boston Fuzz, a wah pedal, and, you know, he brought it home with the full intention to sell it, you know, mm -hmm. to, you know. And he saw me latch onto it. And he and my mom were just like, oh, God. You know, because it was loud and proud and I had a fuzz tone. And it was, that was my rig for, you know, first few years. But I, I realized even at that age that guitar wouldn't stay in tune and ended up jettisoning it and getting something without the, you know, whammy bar on it so yeah but that's that's really how I you know it was kind of like a little bit of preparation you know from being on my brother's terrible acoustic guitar and then uh, my dad bringing home that that gear how did you decide that you were really gonna make a go of it uh, I, I never thought in terms of making a go of it really? I was just I was just in I just wanted to play yeah you know uh, <clears throat> my sister took me to my first concert when I was I guess I was 13, and it was Rare Earth, and they yeah. were playing. She went to school at East Texas State University there in Texas, and that's in Commerce, Texas. So I went went there, and you know, the guitar player for Rare Earth is playing a Gibson SG like the one I had, and everything. It was just yeah. everything that I saw just kind of like kept lining up with. I enjoy this, and I should be doing this, you know. Yeah. Uh, but what happened was, you know, we got to remember I was in the church, um, got good enough to be in a band with some friends, and we got good enough as a band to start doing clubs. And my parents were like, and no, you're not doing clubs. You know, I was, I was young. And so I had to quit the band, you know, which was a drag, and basically just play in the church, you know. Uh, and it was pretty unexciting because at that time the church didn't rock. 
<laughs> you know, so I, sh I guess I should have taken my ukulele. Yeah. Uh, but it it kind of set the stage for me to stay in on the instrument and not just play rock stuff and just do clubs and get crazy. And I think ultimately, I I'm really glad that they made that decision to keep me out of you know playing clubs and mm -hmm. stuff. So uh, so when were you making a living playing music? Well, um, <clears throat> there was a guy at my church, his name is Kirk Dearman, and he, Kirk ended up moving to Franklin from Texas, okay. oddly enough. But way back then in the 70s, he uh, had heard me play there at church and uh, knew of a session there in Dallas that needed a guitar player. And uh, so he recommended me for the session, and I was 15. So my sister Pam had to drive me to the studio because mm -hmm. I didn't have a driver's license. That was pretty embarrassing, but you know, I had made her pull around the corner and I carried my super reverb and I had a Gretsch at that point and hustled everything in. And so I was 15, you know, when I did my first session. Uh, and then, you know, played in some bands and stuff after that, but it wasn't until 1980 that I started you know, I was like full-time starting the summer of, of 1980. And I worked at a, a label down in Houston called uh, Starsong Records. Uh, I'd gone to college. I wanted to go into solar energy. I've always been science-minded, and I've always been fascinated with solar, you know, solar energy. But you couldn't just major in environmental studies. I went to school at Baylor University. You had to double major, so I picked geology. So I thought, the government doesn't get behind solar energy I'll work for a petroleum company. I'll, I'll go to the dark side, you know. Yeah. But I kept getting called away so much from school to play on sessions. So I ended up switching my major to business, and I got a marketing management degree. So got out of college, went down to Houston, and uh, helped manage the studio as far as booking time for people and uh, helping a little bit with the accounting books and playing on sessions and yeah. did that, started that full-time in 1980 and uh, started playing some clubs uh, there in Houston and then uh, a friend of mine uh, that I'd met, they would fly him in from Los Angeles, his name is Keith Edwards, great drummer, they would fly him in from Los Angeles to play in all these sessions. He started touring with Amy Grant so when that slot became open he recommended me for that gig and that's how I ended up with her. Yeah. And, uh, you know, because I went to Baylor University, it's in Waco, Texas, uh, there was a, a label there, Word Records. They ended up moving here to yeah. Nashville. So when it was all said and done, I was living in Houston, but I had a gig in Nashville, and I knew more contacts in the music industry in Nashville than I did in Houston. So it was a really, it's a pretty easy move. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so Amy Grant needs a guitar player. Yeah. And instead of getting someone, you know, from from that's Nashville, already, that's already in Nashville, yeah, you know, the, because the drummer recommended you, yeah, you yeah. know, you, you know, so did you audition for it? Did you? Well, you what know? happened was I was I was in a really good band uh, at the time, and you know, we we basically did covers and stuff, and it was a little kind of a jazz, but it was just a cool pop band and really good players. Yeah, um, our sax player Everett Harp, he's gone on to play with everybody. He lives in Los Angeles and has a solo career. Our drummer, Pat Bouts, he's been with Three Dog Night for, for ages. Um, it was a really good band, and 
uh, Amy's husband at the time, Gary Chapman, he and some friends were going to uh, Galveston or something like that. They were going to do a beach trip. Mm -hmm. And so they had a Winnebago, and they drove through Houston. And uh, Gary was going to come in, but he didn't fit the dress code. I'm like, this guy's auditioning me. we yeah. got to let him in. Yeah. But he had sneakers on. Mm -hmm. So uh, I was standing outside by the, the, the guy guarding the door, and I said, Gary, what size shoe do you wear? And he said, 10 and a half. I'm like, all right, let's trade shoes. Because I could wear anything. Yeah. So we traded shoes right there, <laughs> and they let him in. And so, uh, yeah, and so he watched us play that night, and afterwards we're all sitting around, and somebody said, so they started asking him, so this tour coming up, you know, who else is part of it? And he goes, well, he goes, you, and he pointed to me, and I'm like, okay, yeah. I got the gig, you yeah. know. So it was, it was a good, yeah. so, a good little so, audition. So Gary Chapman goes and sees you play, <laughs> yeah. hires you for the gig. Yeah. Now, they're... Uh, People can can find this on YouTube. There's a uh, there's footage uh -oh. of of you playing on Hee Haw with Amy Grant, <laughs> and so you're performing the song at Angels. Angels, yeah, you know, yeah. And uh, and so you can see that that lineup with the floating guitar. Yes. So you, you have a, a classical guitar. That's it's an ovation, classical. Yes. yes. And uh, and you've got an electric strapped on. And yeah. I, I think uh, you know, hair. Had yeah, hair. You had some hair. So let's see, the guitar, <laughs> the acoustic guitar, the hair. Yeah, I had I had it all then. Yes, and uh, it looks like Tom Hemby's playing bass. Tom Hemby's playing bass. Gary Chapman's playing is the other guitarist. Yeah, and we were playing through little Galeon Kruger solid state amps. Yeah. It sounded terrible. And, and the best part of the song is that there's one point where you all pause and freeze in place. Hey, you've got some dirt on you, I'm sure, somewhere, right? <laughs> Crack it, open YouTube. <laughs> I'm sure there is. But it's, 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 it's wonderful. So, but, but the point is, uh, is that getting back to it, you know, you went, yes, get back to it. Yeah, you, you went from, you know, Houston, Texas, to all of a sudden you're on, you're on national television and you're playing mm -hmm. with a, you know, with a big act. Yeah. And, and a really nice act too. Yeah. Yeah. So you can't call Amy an act, yeah. <laughs> but she's a very wonderful person. Yeah. 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 That and was so, good. So tell us, you know, what were you know all of a sudden, you know, you're 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 playing clubs, and then all of a sudden you're playing much much bigger venues. You're playing, yeah. you know, with pro sound and everything like that. Yeah, we had Claire Brothers. Yeah. Was that jarring? You know, it was. How much of a transition? Uh, not much of a transition, and, and so. You know, a lot of people that have done the road stuff have done, you know, tours where you're like playing club, a club tour. Yeah. I, I never had to do that. I, yeah. I was able to hop in and get on a, you know, a pretty, pretty decent tour with tour buses, everything. You know, we had several buses out. Yeah. It, was, it was really good. And it, it was jarring. Uh, and the money wasn't amazing at that point yet. Yeah, it, it it got where it's like, yeah, this is a good gig, but at first, like I would, you know, you you know the classic story. You go on the road, and as soon as you leave, everything breaks back home. The car breaks down, you know. Yes. The yes. dryer goes out, you know. Yes. So I would come home and try to fix everything or replace it, and then go out on the road, so that more things could break. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Your your wife blows a tire on, you know, <laughs> yeah. on, on the interstate. Yeah. She dropped the transmission yeah. in Dallas, Texas, on a loop thing, and uh, it was awful. It was yeah. awful, and and at that point, that was before 
are you ready for this? Before cell phones. Yes. And, uh, and, and so you would do the thing where you're in a hotel room and you would call home and then hang up and they would know to call back. You know, because if you yeah. stayed on the phone at the hotel, it'd be like a $90 call or something. Right. You know. Yeah. <laughs> but, it, yeah, it was a much better rate if you, yeah. if you had your, your wife or you know, family member yeah. call, you, call you back from, from home. Yeah. It's way better now with, yeah. with cell phones. Yeah. So you, the, fo- the following tour uh, was the Unguarded, which was a, a, a huge record for, for Amy. Yeah, it was. And all of a sudden you were playing even bigger venues. Yeah, uh, and, and playing really great TV things. Yeah, yeah. So you're playing the Grammys. The Grammys, yeah. yeah. And that was amazing. In, in that, uh, you know, your backstage. That was that was the year that Tina Turner won for "What's Love Got to Do with It." Yeah. And uh, I was. They had me go to makeup, and I'm sitting in a chair, and then in comes Randy Newman, and on the other side is Henry Mancini. And Randy had won in a pre-show uh, award for uh, scoring The Natural, this movie, the Robert Redford movie, right. The Natural. Baseball. And Henry Mancini was up for some movie that he had scored. So the two of them were talking, and Henry's saying, hey, Randy, great job, you know, congratulations and stuff. And I'm in between the two. I, you know, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. Uh, but I talked to Randy for a little bit and you know, got out of there and told the fellows what had happened. Then I went down to get in my seat, which was at the very end of the front row, but at the very end. It was, it was not a great seat. And there was a camera set up. And I asked the camera guy, and he said, uh, he said, yeah, we're doing an opening shot where this camera will be here, but as soon as the show starts, it'll move, and you can have your seat. And I'm like, okay. So I'm standing around, and Randy Newman walks by, and he goes, hey, well, what's up? And I was like, oh, there's a camera in my seat. There's a camera in my seat. You know, he goes, well, here, come sit with me. My wife didn't want to come, so... So I'm on the front row sitting with Randy Newman and Pat Boone is emceeing. No, no, John Denver was emceeing. And there was Bruce Springsteen and uh, Boy George and right, th- <laughs> right there. And sitting directly behind me was Tina Turner. Yeah. So, yeah, that was getting back to going from clubs to playing venue. Go, from going to clubs and stuff to being around, you know, that kind of stuff. It's kind of yeah. like. All right, this this is really different. Big A list, you know. Yeah. (laughs) Performers. Yeah. So it was a lot of fun. the galleon kruger amps that you were using <laughs> so by the time of the ing- <laughs> yeah i use that on hee-haw <laughs> was that what you're using on on tour also that's what they provided us with okay yeah now, it was state-of-the-art at the time it, it was state-of-the-art so were you using like some guitar some pedals along with the galleon kruger or were you uh, just using because i remember the galleon krugers had like built-in chorus and maybe some channel switching or a, yeah. and some verb yeah it, it was basically like a rockman with yeah. a solid state power amp on it okay yeah yeah 
Yeah. Uh, but I, I probably had some pedals at that time uh, because I've always, I've always had little pedal boards. And before that, I remember um, I, I built a pedal board and uh, I took a pig nose and uh, I've still got that pig nose where I took the back half of it off and mounted it in the pedal board. So it was like also a practice rig. Yeah. <clears throat> and so it sat up on top. It looked pretty cool. Uh, but I, I think I had a little uh, pedal board just with a bunch of boss pedals. Yeah. Great for the road and easy to power up and, you know, and cost efficient. Yeah. And we're using the, you know, Strat with two singles the and a humbucker and a Floyd Rose? No, this was, this was a little bit before that. Okay. This was the EMGs. Okay. The Golds. And I still got that guitar yeah. uh, uh, with the Floyd Rose, the obligatory Floyd Rose. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so you're back. Pickup sounds were always a little thin, but yeah. you didn't kind of know yeah. it at the time. And so now on the, you're having to replicate you know, what was on the record. Right. And so you're replicating stuff by like Dan Huff or John Goyne? John Goyne, yeah. John, yeah, yeah, but mainly Dan Huff, but also uh, John Goyne. And then uh, they, you know, they, they would cut a few things out in Los Angeles, so there'd be some other guys, you know, yeah. uh, you know some remember, other players. Yeah, like Unguarded, I remember... Um, there's uh, Paul Jackson Jr. Paul Jackson Jr. Playing yeah, some of his you know yep. little, little popcorn you yep. know, funky exactly. guitar things. Yeah, and and so then live again, you've got to replicate these sounds that are yeah. you know, all kind of rack tones. Uh, yes, and that go from the really big you know overdrive sounds yeah. to the super cleaned chorus that are kind of small sounds. And I ended up I, um, I'm not sure where in the progression, but I ended up with a Bradshaw rig. Okay, uh, you know. Just what you would expect. Huge refrigerator of stuff, but really great. You know, it was great gear. Yeah. And then uh, uh, several amp heads. This Marshall head was one of them that was in there. It's a Plexi head. It's 1967 50 watt. And I had those going into Harry Colby boxes, into a switcher, into the you know the uh, custom audio. And the that Bradshaw rig also allowed me to go direct. For that real spanky, clean, yeah. poppy thing, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, and I had two Claire Brothers wedges, which are the best. Mm -hmm. They're basically like the the Marshall four twelve of monitors. You know, they just yeah. sound amazing. They sound great. Uh, and I had everything running in stereo. It was it was a good it was a good setup. And Dave Graff was my tech back oh, wow. in the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was awesome. So again, you're you're mainly you're you're touring. Now you you are doing some sessions at this point, kind of on the side, but you're not yet playing on Amy's records, right? But with "Lead Me On," yeah. the "Lead Me On" album, that was the first album where you were getting getting to play along with Dan Huff on the album. Yeah, and so what happened was, uh, my family was still in Houston, but I was coming up to Nashville all the time. Uh, so I kind of did a pre-move up to Nashville and lived at Amy's farmhouse with them um, for a few months. Uh, they were very sweet to you know to let me hang there, you know. Yeah. Uh, and the cool thing is that in the basement uh, they had a stone room. They had a studio set up down there, twenty-four track and all sorts of gear and stuff. So I would go down there and just kind of put together musical ideas and uh, play it for Amy and um, she ended up 
writing to them, you know, writing lyrics to them, and they ended up on Lead Me On. Yeah. So, and also Brown Bannister came to Gary, myself, and Amy and said, I need a, a song that's kind of in the, the, the vein of Till Tuesday's Coming Up Close. So we ended up writing 1974. Right. And uh, that was the first song on the album. And then uh, I wrote the track for, wrote all the music and everything for a song called Wait for the Healing, and uh, which featured an instrumental at the end for, and, and it's Mark O'Connor playing through a tweed deluxe, wow. ripping on a electric violin. So, yeah. and it was in five four at that point. You know, how many times can you do five four? Yeah. Um, so, and Amy and Wanker Patrick, um, I think that was maybe their first time to co-write together. But they had they. They wrote the lyrics on that, and then another song called "If You Have to Go Away," and uh, Amy wrote the lyric for that. And yeah, so I ended up on the record, and this was before I had all the big rack stuff. Mm-hmm. And they had they brought Dan Huff, who was living in Los Angeles at the time, and Robbie Buchanan, massive keyboardist. They brought them in from Los Angeles, and I remember, and this was thirty years ago. Their cartage bill was ten thousand dollars. Just to get their gear there, right? Not them, and not to pay them, but just to get their gear there. Because yeah, it all had to be flown in. Yeah, had to. Yeah, yeah. And it was and a lot of gear. It had to be flown into Atlanta and then trucked from Atlanta to Nashville, and then back to you know after the dates and stuff were done. So, uh, but I had a little big, little bitty rack, and it squeaked when you push it. <laughs> you know, so I'm like, I go down to the Bennett house. And, uh, you know, and I'm like, oh, gosh. <laughs> and I go in there, and I'm, I'm like, it's the Hall of the Mountain King. All these keyboards and all these guitar racks and stuff. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I wheel it out of there and grab that Marshall head and a Vox AC30 uh, normal. It's a 1964, I think. Okay. That and a few pedals, not even a pedal board. And I'm like, this will be the ground that I stand on. <laughs> yeah. Because I couldn't compete. Right. You know, and I was able to find some sonic space, you know, because everyone else had all the grandiose stereo yeah. stuff covered. And I was able to find my little bitty spot in there like that. Yeah. You, listening to that album, you can hear that there's the uh, there's a, a huge sonic difference in between you know you can hear the big racks in and you yeah. can hear the more you know amp 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 type sounds well and that was yeah. one of the things that always bothered me it's like we have these huge rigs and the the rigs sometimes were huger than the sound yeah uh, and and they were very clean to a fault yeah all, they were very wide sounds very wide yeah but they kind of lacked mid range. Yeah, so yeah. they didn't, didn't always cut, so you had to really yeah. bring them up. And then you'd have somebody like The Edge in yeah. U2, and his guitars sounded huge. Yeah. And part of it, he was using amps that were, that were breaking up with delays going into that rather right. than delays after it. Right. And it, it was just like, wah, wah, you know. It's like, yeah. okay, lesson learned, you yeah. know. So speaking of Edge, you know, let's talk about the track Lead Me On. Mm. So... Lead Me On was one of the first, you know, kind of non-U2, you know, guitar tracks that kind of had that that dotted eighth note repeat on right. it that, that, <clears throat> that was utilized in it. 
in in a way, you know, before it became kind of cliched. Right. So, you know, right. when it, because anything that gets overdone, you know, by so many different musicians and on so many records over a 20, 30 year period, it become it starts to become a cliche, except for the edge himself. Right. And yeah. uh, and that that part that dun, 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 dun. Yeah, that was played by Dan Huff. Okay, he came up with. In, in fact, we tracked it one day, and uh, and then the next morning when I arrived at the studio, he had gotten there earlier, and he is replacing his part just to kind of fine tune it a little bit more. I guess, yeah. I guess he couldn't sleep that night over it or yeah. whatever. I thought it was amazing to begin with. Yeah, but you know, it, it, was, it was one of those things to where, and it was a, this way for a lot of Amy's music. He would basically play it one time. And then I would play it 400 times because yeah. I'd go on the road with her. You know, right. we'd end up, you know, did a live record with it and stuff. And uh, so that was where my vocabulary of playing came from was somebody would play it one time. I'd play it 400 times and it was under my fingers at that point. Yeah. So I, I would come back to town and somebody lay a chart in front of me and I was like, well, I can do this. I can do this. Would you like me to do this? Yeah. I'm going to try this. This is what I want to hear. Yeah. You know? So, so at first, you're you're kind of you've had to learn this vocabulary from, let's say, Dan Huff, right? And you've had to play it hundreds of times out on the road, and so then you've kind of got some of that vocabulary, and then you're you're applying that to other sessions, right? And of course, in, inserting yourself and kind of exactly. making it your own, exactly yeah. making it my own, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I wanted it to be a little rougher around the edges. Dan is a world class player. And everything he plays is like camera ready. Oh my gosh! Yeah, it's already it's he's he's unbelievable. Just yeah. his touch, and, and that was one of the great things is that I started to be able to do double dates, you know, sessions with him. And I'm sitting there, and I can just watch his right hand and see. I, I'm hearing what I heard on records, but I'm seeing how he's attacking the note. Yeah. The thing about Dan is that every move he makes on a pick, there's no wasted. You know, yeah. If he's moving the pick, he's got a reason for it. Yeah, it it it's amazing. It's very economical playing, and very purposeful. You know, very focused. So I I love that I had that kind of, you know, mentor or whatever yeah. to what, to draw from. What are some other things you learned from Dan? Well, just as far as lay uh, as far as effects, um, you can go overboard with effects, and I also. Uh, credit my girlfriend with this because I see her this in her cooking <laughs> is that uh, you, you know you have a guitar and an amp that's a tone okay you start adding these little effects in and it becomes a sound yes and we're I, I learned how Dan used effects and not to overdo it or underdo it or when to overdo it for you know, to make a statement with a, with a delay bit or whatever. Yeah. But just like uh, in cooking, you add a little bit of this, 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 boom, boom. and maybe cook it a couple of different ways, and you're eating something, you go, oh my gosh, I have no idea what I'm eating, but this is the best thing I've ever eaten. And you've eaten all those elements before. Right. You've had all those spices. But instead of just blowing a bunch of curry on it and going, hey, I'm having curry, Yeah. you know, <laughs> So that's, that's the way I try to attack some things. Little nips and tuck tonally here, little bit of a slap thing here along with a longer delay. 
I've always had two or three delays on my boards because it'll be a little bit of this, a little bit of that, you know, yeah. a little bit of compression. Is it compressing? Only I know, you know. Is there a little bit of modulation? Maybe. And you end up with a sound yeah. instead of, you know, just boom, shang, gang, 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 you know. <laughs> with a ton of tremolo yeah. or delay. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. So then you're continuing, you're, again, you're beginning to get more into session work at yeah. this point yes. because, because of the experience of playing on the Lead Me On record. Now more people are hearing you on record, not just live playing with right. Amy. Right, right, yeah. And so who's starting to hire you? Well, uh, um, I still had a lot of people from Texas that had moved up you know, from Baylor yeah. that had moved to Nashville, so I had contacts there. I wasn't doing any country stuff. Uh, and, you know, he, this is one thing I wanted to touch on, is that you get ready, you gear yourself up for, so when you get called for a session, you're the right guy. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's good to be the wrong guy, too, to show up and you add a bent to it that they didn't see coming. You know, they're like, whoa, that's brown shoes on that black tuxedo, but I kind of like it. You know, yeah. but mainly you're gearing up to, hey, can you? Yes. Did you bring up? Yes, I brought two. You know, you're ready. You, you, you bring this gear. But there's another thing that we do as guitar players. We also, and not just guitar players, anybody in life, we build little shrines to where, of where we want to be. Give you a case in point. I, when I would put gear together, it wasn't so I could be the perfect Nashville session player. In the back of my mind, it's like, what if Peter Gabriel came to town and needed a guitar player? Because I was enamored with his music. It's like, I'm going to gear up like Peter Gabriel could walk in the room, and I'm ready for it. And also, yeah. I can take some of those sounds that are a little more off the wall or dark and put it on some of this pop stuff and it's kind of like the wrong guy in the right way, you know? So building your little shrines to if you were to ever make it big or there's not always, you know, sometimes it's wishful thinking, but sometimes it's also, it sends you in a direction that you normally wouldn't go. And instead of just, you know, zeroing in on what gear you need or, or, or technique and stuff, it's like, I'm gonna come from this angle you know, and you're coming in almost not as an artist, but you're coming in with this, with a, a different way of looking at a song. So I've always think, thought in terms of what if Peter Gabriel were coming, what if David Bowie were to come into town, you know. Yeah. So, and they never did. <laughs> <laughs> but did that ever create problems for you? Because no, because I had the, the straight ahead pop thing. Okay. Pretty so, dialed in. Yeah. So you were you were prepared to do some left of center things, mm-hmm. but if the producer starts starts reeling that back in and not liking it, right. you're, you're you're prepared to go over into the more. Yeah. It's a horrible word, but more the dark side, the, the, the more homogenized, you know, session oh, yes. guy thing. Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, and and some there's a comfort for some people in that, and then there's a discomfort for some people. Uh, uh, Charlie Peacock is a great example. If things are too down the middle, he's got to stir it up. Yeah, he will stir that pot. He will. He'll want some of those influences and things from other things to drift in. You know, so there's there's producers out there that are 
looking for that and want that, you know. Yeah. When, uh, when I was doing, you know, research before, before our interview, I found an old Guitar Player Magazine article that where you were only talking about gear. <laughs> it, was, it was very interesting. It was from about 1995. It had wow. Frank Zappa on the cover. Wow. Oh, yeah. And okay. it was a number of Nashville session guitar players. And you had the, the biggest section. And you were, you know, talking about, you know, your, your rack that combined, uh, you know, rack effects along with pedals. With pedals, yeah. And then even talking about your, your live, live rig with Amy at the time that was like a, a Marshall JMP1 preamp with a with a, a oh, yeah. GP8 a processor, and, yeah. you, and you had a cabinet yeah. that was under the stage, and y'all were already using in ear monitors yeah. in you know '95 or so. And that that particular tour, um, we were in rehearsals, and we had a keyboard tech who had been out with I can't remember who he was out with some huge you know name. And he had this huge keyboard rig off to the side, and I noticed that he was running a computer, a, a, a click track for every song. And I'm like, yeah. "Are we using that much stuff?" And he goes, "No, you should. It's just to keep uh, click track. And every once in a while, uh, we're going to use live strings from the recording date. We're going to have it where they can pump it into the, you know, the PA. Yeah. And there's some percussion stuff, but everything was pretty much live what we were doing. Yeah. But there was a computer running on everything, and I'm like. I'm going to have this computer control everything of mine then. And this was back in the day where, before we were really doing that, and I had a bunch of gear that would MIDI up. I had a GP8, a Roland GP8, or yeah, it was Roland GP8, that uh, had a little wah in it that the wah wah could be controlled yeah. via MIDI. Yeah. So we did four weeks of rehearsals, and then uh, everybody left. I did three days of programming on my own with a Mac Classic. Yeah. <laughs> I remember those? Yeah. Saved my three days of work to a floppy disk <laughs> and flew, to, I think, to San Francisco for tech rehearsals, for two weeks of tech rehearsals, and handed the floppy disk to the keyboard tech. He's like, great, imported it, and it controlled volumes. It controlled delay sends, Leslie speed, wah-wah. I didn't do a thing. And it never failed. This is a, this is very you know, forward thinking <laughs> yeah. on your part because <laughs> that's that's more the you know like the the guitarists on tour with Carrie Underwood and, and Taylor Swift have those kind of rigs now, right? With fractal right, audio right. and things like Where that. Everything's switching, yeah. 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 But but that in you know nineteen ninety four ninety five you know to to have that type of, of system yeah and well the work, floppy disk will tell yeah. you that yeah. is that <laughs> yes you know. and the fact that you could just go out there and play yeah. you didn't have to worry about doing any tap dancing no. at all it was wonderful yeah. 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 It's a good way to go. Yeah. And and on this side of it, it like I say, it never went down. I had a vo I had a volume pedal out and off stage I had a pedal board in case it did go down. Uh but I just ended up never having to touch the volume never having to touch anything. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs>
at what point did so did you leave uh, Amy Grant's tour and start focusing even you know full time on just session playing? Well, she ended up kind of slowing down uh, for a bit, you know, having children. Yeah, and it was a it was a nice segue for me to be able to focus more on session work. And at that point, Dan Dan Huff started producing country. Uh, or he'd start producing. I can't just say country. Right. But he was playing on all the country stuff. He had moved to town, was playing on a lot of country stuff. Right. And playing on it quite well and producing. So when he would get a call uh, that he couldn't make, he would refer them to me. So I ended up playing on Reba stuff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it was, that, that was a transition, you know, Transitioning from clubs to playing in big venues, that wasn't so hard. Playing on country stuff was different because, uh, you know, even though I grew up in Texas, I didn't really listen to country and didn't listen to it. Uh, I don't listen to it now, (laughs) you know. But but I was being hired for the pop aspect of what I brought to the table. Right. And that took me a while to wrap my head around. I thought I was supposed to be a Brent Mason chicken picker guy. And it's just like, I'm not that guy, you know. I'm not that guy. Uh, but I, I got enough of uh, enough under my you know hands to where I could kind of go there enough to fake it in a real way, fake it where they mm-hmm. could use it, you know. And they were like, "Yeah, that works for this song." Uh, but I I started getting calls for country. My my first session with Reba, uh, I brought a Vox acoustic that. It's called the country western model. <laughs> I thought it'd be kind of funny, you know. Yeah. And uh, I had used it like on the DC Talk uh, Jesus Freak album. We had tracked, you know, using it on that, and it sounded great on that record. And I thought, hey, if I have to play some acoustic, I'll have. It says country on it. Yeah. Nobody thought it was funny. Uh, also, when my cartage guy set up my Bradshaw rig, they had a new guy that hadn't patched in a bunch of stuff in the back. I was getting no sound. And I was, it was like, you know, quick, take a picture. I want to remember the worst day of my life kind of a day, you know. Yeah. But Reba was so awesome. And uh, so much of the fact that I ended up going on the road with her later um, and did that for several years. But just that transition into country, it's just such a different mindset. Yeah. Very narrow, you know. Can, can you... At that time, you, very narrow. Yes. Yeah. Can you ex- explain that more? So be more specific on, you know... Yeah, musically, you know, now the... You can't tell if something's country or not. Right. I guess until the hick guy starts singing, yeah. you know. Uh, but back then, 90s country and early 2000s country, it was, it was, it was pretty narrow, you know, at the time. And... Uh, Players that were session players that were on those dates would talk about hearing a Christian album and how cool it was and everything. And it wasn't as cool playing on the country stuff, but the people were great, the pay was awesome, and it sounded really good. It, there was some good music made, you know, on country records then, and I was way happy to be a part of that. So you, you're talking about the the focus. So th- there was. Just limitations on the sounds musically, you provide or the, the music, music on what you yeah, can play. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, if you're if you're on a Christian record date, that's not really saying that's not a very defining 
term. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it could be anything. Yeah. It could be country. Yeah. It usually isn't. It could be rock. It could be pop, alternative. Yeah. But a, especially a 90s country right. session. You know, you kind of had the uh, the Telecaster thing. You had somewhat of the Strat with chorus thing, right. and yep. you had you know. Yeah. So it was it was just another vocabulary to build up, uh, and the musicianship of those players is off the chain. That's that's where I saw the big ears come out. Okay. All these players that that do this day in, day out. They're listening to the singer like nobody's business. On Christian dates and stuff, a lot of times there'd be no singer. You just kind of had to guess where the vocal was, mm -hmm. which is terrible. You know, that's, that's not making music. On these country sessions, it was like guys that had their chops together, had their sounds together, and everyone was listening to each other. And everyone was kind of self-arranging, self-producing in a way that I hadn't seen on regular pop sessions and Christian sessions. Yeah, I remember, you know, early on, you know, we got to a, a solo section and uh, Paul Line, the drummer that was on it, he's like, is it just me or is this solo section too long? And I was kind of like, he's, can, he, can he say that? You know, are we allowed to voice our opinions on if something needs to change or whatever? And the answer right. was, yeah. Especially yeah. if it makes it better, right? Because on a on a pop session, you know, normally the the producer has as is much more controlling, right? And wants you to implement what their idea was. Right. While on many country sessions, they tended to be where the players were having would would have yeah. more input. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Kind of a casting call where yeah. players were, you know, you you get the right chemistry of guys, uh, especially for the particular songs that you've got, and let them. Drop in a quarter and get a song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, what, what were some major things that you learned, uh, you know, technically, um, you know, on the on these country sessions? Were there other players that you learned tricks from? Well, you know? it, it wasn't so much tricks. It's just, um, and I still have to work on this. We all do. Is self editing, mm -hmm. uh, kind of taking a big picture look. Because, number one, the song doesn't revolve around you. You know, you're there to serve the song. You're there to make that artist and the song sound the best that it can. So, um, you know, here you're sitting next to Dan Huff or Brent Mason or uh, uh, just all sorts of players that are so capable of so much, but they will edit it down to this simple little thing. But the way they lay it in... It's deceptively simple and deceptively awesome, you know, when you get the final mix and stuff. And it makes the mix. That was one thing I remember working with Dan. It's just like, why is he always turned up louder than me? <laughs> you know, I'm thinking that. <laughs> and, and then I started noticing on sessions, especially when you're playing with a steel player or a fiddle or whatever, um, Chordal things move to the background. Single linear things move up. That's, that's what catches people's attention. And so you can listen to country stuff today, and if you really listen, there are some single line things that the guitars or electric guitars are playing in the choruses 
that sound, and they are, they're very simple, and they're just little melodic lines that just kind of sit behind the vocal, but you take those out and some of the interest of the song is gone. Yeah. So that's one of the things that I had to get used to is playing a real simple I'm like, really? But if I were to hear it on the radio, I'd go, "That's yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, you know, but at the time it doesn't feel great, so you have to get past that and realize that all those linear things really send the take the song to a new you know to a new level, and they yeah. also get put you know pushed up in the mix. Give, uh, if, if if you don't mind, would you give us an example of playing more chordal things versus playing something more linear like on a chorus? Yeah, well, let me get rid of that. <laughs> So if I were playing some chordal, you know, I could... And then somebody else would be going like... Um... There's a six minor. You know, you're just playing little single yeah. lines over you going, you know... So those little single lines end up getting pushed up more than the chordal stuff, or even like rake. And sometimes I'll incorporate both. You know, yeah. like what I just did. You know, you yeah. you play a chord, a melodic line, and you just make sure that. It complements rhythmically where yeah. the you know the main vocal is. So with the, with these lines that you're playing, are are you still trying to stay out of the way of the vocal, or yeah. you just okay? And sometimes sometimes it's just a little weaving line that is it's not on top of the vocal because it never will be mix wise, right? But it always complements what's there, and yeah. it also kind of helps get it away from just chunking out chords yeah. and yeah. stuff. Yeah. Just raking diamonds. Yeah. And yeah. it's also effective when somebody else hops on that line with you. And that's common. You know, you're on a session, hey will you hop on this line with me and yeah, play it for me and yeah. you'll play that da 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 yeah. and the steel will grab it. And suddenly it's a thing. Right. It almost becomes an event. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. What's an, another uh, you know Playing concept you, that's that's been important to you. Uh, I when I've took when I when I started viewing the listener driving down the road in the car with the ability to turn the channel, the station. That that really helped. So imagine your your you know your listener is driving down the road, song comes on. Yeah. So you usually put some kind of little hook on there. Something where it's not just people playing chords, you know, mm -hmm. and they're like, okay, what's this? First verse, someone starts singing. They now know whether it's a guy or a girl yeah. or a duo, you know. Uh, so it's like, all right, this guy's singing. What's he singing about? They'll kind of check in, hear the thing. You get to the chorus, and uh, there's kind of a payoff, and it's bigger, and makes you, okay, all right, you're listening. At that point, and you're about a little over a minute into the song, they've basically heard the song. You know? 
They know the intent of the song. They know the melodic structure of it. They've heard the verse. They've heard a chorus. And except for that little hook thing in the intro, it's like, this guy's going to turn the channel if we don't do something quick. You know? Okay. So you do a little bit, you do a half turnaround to not bore him. You know, you do a little shortened version before the second verse. And it's like, and that's where we'll start doing, you know, little, you know, chopsticking. Guitars will get more rhythmic, and yeah. there'll be another element. A keyboardist will add an interesting sound. Yeah. And I just envision that this guy's he's going, oh, I, they added something. <laughs> you know? It's, yeah. like, it's like having a little uh, a baby that they're going to cry, and you go, oh, no, 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 no. Oh, yeah. no, look, 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 look. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, and you dangle these things in front of them to try to keep them engaged. Right. And uh, that second chorus hits, and hopefully it's got enough whatever to keep them, you know. Then you hit them with either a solo, which only happens in country now, or you hit them with a bridge. Oh, wait, is, is this the same song? Yeah. You know, yeah. you hit them with a bridge to keep them engaged, and they think, well... I've heard. I've definitely heard this song now. I've heard a verse. I've heard a chorus. I've heard two verses, two choruses. I heard yeah. the bridge. Oh wait, they broke it down. Wonder why they did that. It's gotten softer. <laughs> you know, we do all these little tricks to try to keep the listener engaged. Yeah. And try to keep them from crying and changing yeah. stations. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a great analogy. Yeah, that's a great, and I, I, great I, way I, of looking at it. I really keep that picture in mind. So I'm yeah. always. Uh, even even before I hear the work tape, I'm thinking in terms of the intro. I'm thinking in terms of all right, what is, is there a little line or something I can play in the choruses? What can I do at that second verse? Yeah, you know, or what can I do at the very top to get them interested? And then the bridge. Holy crap, we got a bridge. Something's got to change. Yeah. So bridges either go. You know, the drummer's doom, doom, goes to Tom's or it airs out or whatever. So it's, it's, it's a constant, not battle, yeah. but it's a constant puzzle to try to keep that momentum going through a song and keep the listener engaged. Yeah. And I just envision them, okay. <laughs> and you want them to hear it again. Yeah. You want them to hear that song yet again. If you had to name the three or four people in this town that have done the most for your career, that have helped you the most, who would, who would those guys be? Hmm, I would think, um, of course, Dan Huff. Definitely Dan. Because he's referred you and you learned from him. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, I, I had to learn his parts. Uh, you know, uh, and when I went out on the road, uh, those early producers that I worked with, Brown Bannister, uh, that produced... He's kind of like the Quincy Jones of Christian music. Yeah. He's like he kind of looks like Eric Clapton, but he's kind of the Quincy Jones of Christian music. Uh, and then Keith Thomas is another. Right. Uh, back in the day, Keith would spend nine weeks on a song, on a single. Wow, that's unheard of in the, in, in our day. But yeah. you heard it on the radio. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it was heard on the radio. He would he would produce hits. Yeah. Uh, he would write hits, and you would come in, and I remember that, you know, he'd go, hey, yeah, here's a song I want you to play on it, and he'd play it for me, and I'd be like, oh, God, why didn't you call me six weeks ago? It sounds like a finished, mastered, out-the-door hit. 
I have nothing to add to this. You right. know, that's how I felt. Yeah. And, you know, you just try to find your little piece in that, you know. He was masterful at that. Uh, working with Charlie Peacock, who's comes from so many different... He's, he's hard to pin down stylistically. He does have a jazz background, and that comes through his music. But he's always, always wanting to stir it up. Kind of like in a Paul Simon kind of way. You know how yeah. Paul Simon will yeah. grab different influences and stuff? That's the way Charlie, Charlie is too. And he'll keep you on your toes. And you're thinking, man, this is sounding pretty good. Oh, it's not right? Okay. <laughs> Teach us the ways, you know. <laughs> so we can all leave the dojo. Yeah. And I love I've I've been working with Charlie over twenty years. And just and he he sent me some stuff just recently, the last couple of days. It's just like thank you, thank you. Especially nowadays, uh, uh, and this can be the downer part of the of the interview. Nowadays, we're cutting radio singles and bad radio singles because if okay. it's not a single. It, there's no money to be made on it because radio still pays, but there's no, there's not album sales, so you can't piggyback, you know, ten songs onto a hit and right. sell a product. Just that one song will go out there, and it'll be streamed, so the money's tight right there to begin with. But you know, I talked to a hit songwriter here in town. He said, if if I get a song cut and it's not a, it's not a single. He said, I won't recoup my demo costs. Wow. Yeah. With a major artist. Yeah. Like, he won't make $500 on a, something that a major artist, hey, so-and-so cut my song. Yeah. And I lost money. <laughs> and I lost money, yeah. So, wow. uh, in an age where, in a day, in a, you know, where you're having to play on singles and bad singles when you get something from some of these writers and a producer like Charlie it's just like okay this is why this is why I got into this you know this is for the deeper deeper level of music not just to sell soap on the radio yeah. but for this deeper thing here so he's constantly saving saving me you know folks, Bob Weil here at True Tone. Hope you're enjoying this episode of the True Tone Lounge. And if you like it, and if you're getting addicted to the lounge, please hit that YouTube subscribe button. Dre, let's talk effects. Let's talk, <laughs> let's talk gear. Let's talk all the, all this, you know, flashing lights. And, and <laughs> yes. So, so first off, you've got this, uh, this tele type guitar. Who made this? This is uh, Dan Strain and Matt Bunch. So it's a Danocaster. Yeah. I thought they should have gone with Strainocaster, but I could see how that would probably not fly from a marketing standpoint. Yeah. Danocaster. You don't have to play it strain, strain to play it. 
it 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 feels like it feels like you found the most amazing vintage guitar. That's this like this will be the guitar that will define who I am. Yeah, it it's probably my best playing guitar. Yeah, yeah, out of several dozen guitars. How did how did you find him? Uh, I was on a session with uh, Tom Bukovac and Kenny Greenberg. The three of us yeah. were uh, worked a few days uh, down in Music Row together, and. Tom kept bringing out all these vintage guitars, great guitars. And Kenny and I were like, yeah, yeah. And uh, Tom finally said, have you noticed I haven't brought out any Fenders? And we're like, yeah, they've all been Gibsons or Gretches and stuff. And he goes, it's because there's better guitars being made that outplay any vintage Fender. You won't find a better playing guitar than these. So he, started, he brought out a few of his uh, Danocasters and it was just like, He's right, you know. So I'd known Dan for a long time. I used to go down to, to Broadway music consignments and Dan worked around the corner uh, years ago uh, over at Nicholson's. And um, so I'd known him for a long time and I, it, it helped shave some of the wait time off for the guitar and I was yeah. able to get one. And uh, I, I want for him to make Gretsch's and Gibson's and. <laughs> Because he just does a better, they just do a better job. It's him and some other guys, but yeah, yeah, I love it. Well, cool. And so this kind of fulfills your uh, your you know late fifties, early sixties, yep. you know, kind of Steve Cropper, Mike Bloomfield, you know, kind of you know, yeah, you know, telly thing. Yeah. So uh, while we got the the telly, let's let's look at your board here. You've got uh, you know variety of now you've got some uh, you know some pedals that are kind of become Nashville standards. Yeah. So there's, what is it about the nobles and the Mostortion that, that are just, you know, kind of ever present here? Well, I can speak more to the nobles. Why I like, I'm, by the way, I'm exercising these little pots because otherwise they're kind of scratchy when you first turn them on. The nobles, uh, and Tom Bukovac again turned me on to that. Um, it, you don't lose any low end when you kick it in. In fact, bass players use them here in town because they can kick it in and not, they don't even have to blend it in. It just yeah. adds, it, it takes what they had. There, you do lose a little top. It's not a transparent overdrive, but it, it adds a, a low end in the right spot. I'm not even sure where it is, yeah. where the low end is, but it gives you a nice little bump. And the way it interacts with, you know, with most amps, it's, it's just, it takes it to that next level. And you know, and back in the day we had, back in the day we still have them, but uh, I would have either a channel switching amp or a, uh, uh, the Bradshaw, which would switch amp heads. I still kind of view it like that. Like the Nobles is kind of the next level of overdrive. So it's like if I kicked in a Vox head or something, uh, then distortion, it would be more like, I would either use that or the, Zvex uh, box of rock mm -hmm. to kind of get into the Marshall realm a little bit. Yeah, um, uh, I've got the dude on here for solo stuff, and then for extra crunchy, I've got a Friedman guy on there, and I've, I, I, that position is kind of a revolving position between different pedals. Um, so it's overdrive, distortion, heavier drive, and then lead to that tone. I just I kind of take. I usually have four pedals like that. I, I don't try to get one pedal to do everything. Right. You know, it'll be specifically for one thing. The Mostortion's the interesting one, and that is a, you can set it to where when you kick it in, 
you don't hear the difference. But I use it for tone shaping more than anything. A big thing I use it for, especially if I'm using it with uh, a neck humbucker, is to lock some of the low end off. Okay. You know, uh, because I may want to... Uh, Muddy, otherwise. Or if you're doing, it's just like bruh, bruh, bruh. It just helps to shape the sound. Sometimes I use it to darken a pickup uh, to make a small sound, but yeah. then you can also use it the other way to, as a true distortion, you know, to goose everything up. So it's kind of like a distortion and EQ. And EQ, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. it's got the three band passive. Yeah, EQ, and, right? and because it's a transparent overdrive or distortion pedal, you can set it to where, like I say, when you kick it in, you can't tell that you've kicked in a, a distortion pedal. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And these look kind of different because they've been rehoused by uh, XTS. They're not. Yes. Yeah. And that I, I've had different rehousing jobs done and very just, I mean, look at it. <laughs> it looks like that was what it was supposed to be meant. And I like that it's tall because it sits above these guys. Right. You know. So then, uh, let's see, you've got the EP booster. And the SP. EP booster is great for a telly because the, the back pickup can be a little thin almost for what I need it to be. Right now, it's pretty overdrive. But it had a little bit of you know beef in the low end. Yeah. Sometimes I'll use the SP compressor. I'll I'll turn it down a little bit, and it's a it's a parallel compression. So yeah. you're not you're just not like a Dynacomp where everything's <laughs> you know it, yeah. it, it gives you some of the dry signal and then yeah. some of the mixed in. Uh, you know, because, and I've still got, I've got script logo Dynacomps and they're just too much. You know, there was the joke that uh, there was a guy at the Opry that he used so much Dynacomp that when people told him to turn down, he would just play harder. You know, <laughs> and everything would just, because <laughs> uh, a Dynacomp can crush, crush your signal. <laughs> So those guys are always on the board. Yeah. And you've got the the H9 and the and the Line 6 H HX. This is a a, a new a newer guy. Yeah. yeah. And this is kind of kind of taking the place of their M9. Yes. The HX you can have six effects on at once. Uh, I think the the it's a better sounding unit fidelity wise than the M9. Uh, I never had any of my M9s you know modded or anything. You could do that. Yeah. But, um, you know, when I go into this, to sessions, you know, this thing has 128 banks. I use one of them, you yeah. know, and I'll, I'll just use this, this main bank and just copy stuff down into it. So, you know, like I've got the harmonic trim. <laughs> Thank mm -hmm. you. 
one thing I love doing is uh, using it for like a low cut. Just like that guy. For that. You know, then. So you can yeah. start a song off with a, you know, that gag. Yeah. Starting off with a small sound, and then when you kick it out, it's, you know, yeah. it's big. What are, what are some of the other ones on here that uh, you use a lot? Uh, you mean in the HX? Yes. Um, well, here's what I did. By the way, this the timing of this, the, the, the MIDI BPM, the timing of this guy, uh, and also the, the uh, tap tempo is controlled by this quartz. It's made in Australia. It sends out all sorts of, you can program it with a computer program to send out just about any kind of MIDI message. But it's, it's kind of like the one stop for, you know, like somebody will say, oh, we're up to 97 now. Well, now these three units are in perfect sync. Right, so now they're already locked in. So when you, yeah. when you turn them on, they're already locked in. They're place. already locked in place, yeah. yeah. So I, I use this guy a lot. I use it a lot to recall uh, banks on the HX that I've pre-made some effects. So watch this. I'll go up here, and it'll do half BPM, so I've got a preset for that. But here's some delays that I can quickly go to. A quarter note, a deluxe memory man, eighth note, dotted eighth. A, a different kind of delay with no modulation, quarter, vintage, dotted. Here's another page with a slap, a dirty slap, digital things. Uh, this emulates my nemesis. So what I'll do, I'll go up to these, here's more complex, like, it'll, it'll do a, a, a double delay thing. But I'll, I'll come up here and I'll go, yeah, I'll copy that one, and then I'll paste it down into that one preset bank that I use. Yeah. So, because when you recall effects on these units, it, it, it's the factory knob settings, and we move so fast in the studio, I don't have time to try to remember what my favorite settings are, I just store them. Yeah. Uh, up here, I have a different, a page of tremolo. Optical bias. I don't know where I ever use that. Yeah. But, See, I can just pull one of those up. These are timed out, you know, to the tempo-wise, and I don't. I can just paste them down into that first preset. Here's a bunch of different flangers and stuff. Here's a really deep one. It's good for gags like a. It's, that's a gag. <laughs> uh, fast phaser. Now, this is uh, something I use quite a bit. And one, one thing that I do that I see a lot of guys doing is just ditching all the tone on your guitar. Uh, so it, it, all the tone's rolled off. Yeah. A fast phaser. Add some delay to that. I got into turning all the 
all the tone off from from doing uh, Evo stuff, you know. Um, it helps to turn the turn the tone down. Yeah, otherwise it's just like. So it's more flute-like. I do turn the volume, the tone up if I want to do a, you know, just kind of a little. Yeah. I don't even know what you'd call that. But I love the the tonal stuff that you get out of ditching all your topping. Almost sounds like a Fender Rhodes or something. Yeah. Uh, I keep a page of, you know, vibratos and chorus. Is chorus acceptable again? Not really. Yeah. Sometimes, now, there, there, there's uh, a lot of younger producers and stuff that really will want you to do the 80s thing. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? They wanted to go back to the 80s and it's like, really? Okay. Yeah. So it's it's ready for that. Yeah. But a lot of the the older producers they live they lived through it and they they been there done that. Yeah. yeah they don't want to hear the chorus. Yeah, either. exactly. That's interesting. Uh, this then it's got this EQ section where the, I mean I, I, these are presets that I've come up with and they're on these banks. So I do a, like a mid boosting. <laughs> Can we say that? And then here's a high cut. We just did. Tiny EQ. And that's good if I need to make a patch where I don't have time to shift. I'll be grabbing the Evo and I can just, you know, I'll. I use that. So the EQ section on the HX is really good. Yeah. It's got good verbs on it. There's actually some decent distortions on it, uh, but I use these guys instead. Yeah. And some actually some pretty cool, uh, you know, big mustache. You know, I've, I've got... A 1972 Big Muff and a 77 Big Muff, and these, the, the, the stuff that's in there is pretty impressive. Well, cool. And the, and the H9, what do you use that for? Just, you know, I, I don't have it pressed into surface like I want to just yet. Uh, I, I'm starting to get some patches that I really like on it. Uh, great for more expansive type stuff like that. Wider sounds. Yeah. Good landscape stuff. Uh, but also for landscape type stuff, and uh, this Canyon pedal is a great delay pedal. I've, I've got, it's a, a Electroharmonics uh, Canyon, and I've got a little label on there because the, the the type is so small that I had to make my own little cheat sheet on uh -huh. there. Uh, but it's got, you know, really nice delays. Does an interesting thing with reverse delays where it listens to where you're playing and will reline up the reverse 
and, oh. and, 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 most of the time it works. It doesn't always, but it's yeah. great for the... It takes some of the randomness out. Yeah. Let me see where I am tempo-wise. Um, I got to play to the tempo. It's random yeah. as yeah. Uh, normally that is. Also, also there's a great um, um, ambient thing. I just pulled the uh, tongue back on my good. It's great for doing swell stuff, you know. I use that pedal all the time, the Canyon, especially because it tap tempos up so nicely with the quartz, with this Sela quartz guy. And I've got a YouTube video on how I use all this stuff together with the, the quartz pedal. Because again, it gets back to how fast you can get to some of these sounds. Yeah. You know, and we move so dumb quick in the studio here. Um, you know, that if you're taking if you're taking a long time to to get a sound, they're yeah. They're like, what, what yeah. are you doing? You're, you're, you're exactly you're burning, burning time. Yep. Yeah. Uh, another. This is a gag, pure gag. Uh, the freeze pedal. <laughs> so I. I <laughs> But I use it to like to like if there's a breakdown section and like say we're in A, you know I'll do a thing up here. You know it's almost like the reverse. Yeah. You know doing something reverse in Pro Tools, but I can do it live. Also, it's great for like a swell stuff. With delays, it's and some more of that canyon pedal. It can get menacing, you know. Yeah.
So you you recently sent me a picture of a of a live pedal board because yep. you had done some shows with uh, Faith Hill and Tim McGraw. Yeah. I guess filling in for one of the guitar players. Yeah, David Levita. Yeah, he had some health stuff that he's thankfully passed and everything. Yeah. So I ended up doing about a, a quarter of the tour. Yeah. You know, and it it was one of those where uh, you, you've heard the old stories about. Yeah, my old man took me and threw me in the lake. It was kind of like that. Yeah. And that I flew in and uh, got a sound check and got a good meal at catering. And yeah. then you're in front of yeah. 15,000 people playing you, the show. Yeah. No rehearsal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the pressure's on. Actually, see, here, here was the good thing. And this doesn't always happen, but I had plenty of time to learn it. Yeah. Uh, and I learned no charts or anything. I mean, I I made it my goal to be bored the first show. Yeah. And I was pretty bored. Yeah. <laughs> I just went autopilot, click, you know, and yeah. just played the show. It was a blast. Yeah. When you, it's you know, people are like, oh, just go out and have fun. It's like when you know the material, it's fun. Yes. <laughs> and also, if there's problems, you know, you're able to you're able to kind of play through it when yeah. you know the material. That yeah, well. exactly. Yep. Yeah. Instead of being, oh, I don't, I'm do not loving my tone, or I happen yeah. to, yeah. Yeah. People can get d distracted by those things and not realize that. Yep. People paid a lot of money to to come see the the act play, and they want to hear you know the guitar parts, not a guitar player acting funny all night. <laughs> yeah. Why is he bummed? Why yeah. isn't he having fun? Yeah. yeah, so I did that, and uh, I didn't take this board. I took a, a, a bigger board. Uh, you know, there's such a difference between your live board and session okay. board. Uh, part of it is uh, a session board, you're sitting down. The yeah. ergonomics of layout and stuff is totally different. Yeah. Uh, also, with a live board, uh, if something's screwy, you need to be able to pull stuff up quickly have room with cables and everything. Yeah. So it was very wide with not a ton of pedals on it. Yes. Yeah, yeah that was one of the things I noticed on it was that, you know, <laughs> all it was, the real estate. Yeah, it was it was a large pedal and, and I could and, and and immediately that was one of the things I thought was I bet it's large so that you can easily get to things. Yeah, and so, exactly. And, and instead of the power supply being underneath it was on top. And, yeah. Exactly. And, yeah. yeah. Because you know when they put stuff in trucks, you gotta be able to see what happened on that ride back from Albuquerque. You right. know? Right. You gotta be able to see if, you know, cables made it and you know, all your patch cables and stuff. Yeah. And you know, we had a a great crew, so they would catch any of that stuff. But it's just you're always you just want to get to catering, you know? Yeah. You don't want to sit there and troubleshoot <laughs> yeah, stuff. You don't want to be troubleshooting. No, stuff. you wanna be at catering. Yeah. You know, or hanging yeah. with the fellas, you know. Yeah. 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 So I ended up building uh, I listened to what the material was, some of the sounds that David had gotten. And, you know, I thought, well, I can, I'll put my bent on it a little bit, uh, but very basic stuff in that four different dirt pedals, Strymon Delay, you know, the timeline, Strymon Mobius, uh, you know, a, kind of a wide variety of the M9, which is a power hog. Yeah. And that's why I ended up, I went down to Corner and asked you know, Todd Zilla, Todd, <laughs> you yeah. know, I need a power supply. And he turned me on to the the, the 12, the S CS12. CS12. Okay. Uh, and they're all, you know, I've been building pedal boards forever. Yeah. And finagling power. And I'm used to having a power strip. I was trying to figure out, all right, where am I going to mount the power strip so yeah. I can have 
the dedicated power supply for this guy because he doesn't like to be powered off a brick. You know, the M9's a hog. So I'll I'll use a Line 6 thing. So I was all prepared for that. And I brought the the CS12 home. And one, um, the cord, the different cord length, I didn't have to take little pieces of whatever and tie up little loops. Yeah. It, it made, you know, it's like, oh, I need to go from there to here. I couldn't remember what color it was, but it's like, all right, there's yeah, that. There's the right one to use. It was, I, I didn't use any other outside power supplies. Yeah. I just used the CS12 and it did everything perfect. So I ended up buying a second one of those and putting it into another pedal board that I use on sessions. Uh, and then I have a little guy that has a, Remember the adrenaline pedal, yeah. the Roger Lynn pedal? Yeah. That's a bizarre power supply. And then a, a pitch shift pedal, which is another bizarre power supply. I bought a CS7 for that little satellite board. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I've, yeah, it was, they're, they're great purchases. I've, yeah. I've bought three of them, you know. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, well, I, thank you. I mean, seriously, I, I have to, especially like the HX, it's a hoss. Yeah. It's like two amps or three amps or something like that. Uh, not milliamps. We're talking, you know, yeah, uh, lights dimming when you turn it on. Yeah, you know. it pulls a lot of power. Yeah, especially yeah. on its boot up. Yeah. So the 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 twelve. I've I've powered it off the CS7 too. Yeah. Uh, it handles that with no problem. So I don't have to yeah. use their weird wall yeah. wart thing. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. One stop shopping. <laughs> Let's pull another one of your one of your guitars. All right. Show us another main guitar. Um, now, some of these guitars, uh, some of these guitars, I end up using just because it's like, oh, I didn't see that one coming. You know, you want to yeah. kind of stir things up. Yeah. Uh, this Jaguar, this Fender Jaguar, is is one of those guys. Uh, it's a newer guitar. Um, uh, one of the guitar players in Paramore, I've known him since he was a young kid. I think he's been playing one of these. I don't know if he still does. But I thought it was a good good pick for me because you can switch up to this upper neck pickup and have the tone all the way off mm-hmm. just with a switch right? instead of having to grab the tone. So I like that. Uh, there's a split coil thing on here. I ended up putting an Evertune bridge on here, and uh, that was at the... Uh, advice of David Levita, the guy with Tim yeah. Faith. He's an L.A. guy. The first time I played with him, uh, we played an awards show with Faith. He had a 335 with one on it. He flew in from L.A., pulled it out of the case, strapped it on, and just started playing. And he's perfectly in tune. I looked down at his pedal board. There's no tuner. I'm like, why yeah. do you not have a tuner? He goes, oh, God, I use this. Yeah. Go, and, this, and this guitar sat in a cold warehouse overnight. And it was like, shbang! <laughs> and I was like, hmm, what is this ever tune that you speak of? So I use them as rhythm guitars in the studio and also for TV date guitars where you're yeah. not having... I, I set them to bend, you know. The, this one is... No, well, this one isn't set to bend. I think the Les Paul I have set to bend. Uh, if, when you're going to go do a TV date... There's nothing more frustrating than the unforgiving nature of TV and being on camera for three minutes out of tune. Yeah. Uh, 
and give you a good example. This Les Paul that was in the flood, that was ruined in the flood, but I had it redone by Glazer Instruments. I had them put an Evertune on it. And I went, uh, when David Letterman, remember when he was on TV, he had the David Letterman show? Yeah. I did the uh, Letterman show with Chris Cornell and with Joy Williams from Civil Wars. They did, mm -hmm. they did a song for a soundtrack of, what was it, six years, seven years a slave, whatever. Okay. Yeah. That, that movie. Yes. Chris had written a song called Misery Chain, and it's an amazing song. And he came into town, and we recorded it with him, got to work with him in the studio. And then Charlie you know, said, hey, they want to go up to Letterman and play this live. So we went up there. You go from a hot dressing room to a, a stage that's, that is set at 48 degrees. Yeah. And that Les Paul was tuned down a whole step. I was playing out of a G position, but the song was an F. An unwound G down a step yeah. from a hot dressing room to a, it would have been a disaster. Yeah. But, but it was just like, shang, <laughs> you know, it was, it was joyous. It was, it was kind of otherworldly that it, you could get away with that. Yeah. And you can, you can bang on them and they're just like, boom, they don't do that, they don't do that yeah. sharp excursion thing. Right. So when I'm on sessions, to get that first part down, and to move on to the next guy, because you're, you're going to be asked to do an overdub right after that. I don't have to worry about tuning or whatever. It's just like, bang out that first track, and then pick up the, you know, the guitar, a non-Evertune, and you know that you've got this nailed pitch you know, rhythm part. Uh, because back in the days of tape, and uh, if you were doing a rock record especially, you could be punching just about every bar. Yeah. You would tune for the next chord, and you would punch that, and it kind of sounds that you already did that, you know. Wow. Yeah. Neat feature. Yeah, it's it's a wonderful feature. Yeah. And I, th I think some guys think, well, does it change the sound? Yeah, when they're in tune, they really sound different. <laughs> <laughs> and they do, you know, they do take a lot of wood out of the guitar. Okay. But... I, you know, did it change the sound? I don't know. But it's in tune. But it's in tune. Yeah. And so you have to have one set up to where it, it's not meant for bending. Well, here's the deal. Like, I'll, I'll flatten this. Finally, keep, you keep yeah. you know raising it until it changes pitch. There. So now you can or set it to bend and yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll try to keep it kind of on the cusp of yeah. that yeah. but still where I can just like bang through for power chords yeah. I can tune that Les Paul down to uh, I can drop the whole tuning and do a drop C and hammer it yeah just as hard as you can play and it's just like right on it's just it. like, <laughs> yeah it's awesome <laughs> show us another one all right 
So this guitar, I didn't really care for when I first got it. I did, I did and I didn't. I cared for the guitar. It's a straight off the rack, Eric Johnson okay. Strat. Yeah, the no string tree. Yeah. yeah, no string tree. And I used to have a 1961 uh, Sunburst Strat. I ended up selling it to Bukovac. Okay. And, uh, so I was kind of looking for another strat to take its place. I demonstrated some Pigtronics effects at a in a booth one time at a, one of the shows. Yeah. And uh, I just showed up and they handed me this guitar and I spent the day playing it. And afterwards I was just like, I think I'm going to have to buy this guitar. You know, and they thankfully sold it to me. Uh, there's no, I don't think there's anything really special about it. It's just an off the rack guy. Yeah. But it's so versatile. Uh, I, I love the the spanky back pickup, especially for rakes and stuff like. Uh It just the neck, everything about it is just right. And at first I was like, oh, I'm definitely changing out the pickups. Yeah. But I would get on a session and somebody would go, man, what guitar is that? And I go, it's a guitar I'm thinking about changing the pickups. <laughs> you know? Sure, sure. Uh, I, I did a record with Chris Isaac. Remember the, uh, you know, that yeah. guy there? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, wicked, wicked Game. Wicked Game, yeah. Yeah. But I did a record with him and uh, that Paul Worley produced here in town. And we kept going back to this guitar. Uh, I had all these other cool, weird guitars. Yeah. And a, I have a 1963 dot neck, you know, with the factory Bigsby and all these cool guitars and stuff. And, oh, the guitar center strat, okay, yeah. <laughs> you know, because it sounded perfect for his, his stuff. Yeah. And I like the, the, the tone control in the neck. Perfect for the Ebo stuff and for the, you know. It's just a, a great little versatile guitar, but uh, I'm going to hang on to this because I, I usually don't sell stuff. Yeah. I got to get a Dan Strain version of a Strat. <laughs> I got to I gotta have that. Cool. Show, show us another one. All right. This guitar, it's like, oh, ho-hum, it's a PRS. They're great guitars. Love the way they lay them out to where the, the string passes over the nut. Yeah. But... In 2010, we had a big flood, yeah. and I had 17 guitars underwater. Uh, um, you know, most of them didn't make it. Uh, I had amps, that big rig with the pedals and rack stuff. Yeah, dead, gone, gone. Yeah, just you just had to. Yeah, I, I, all that stuff was insured, so I took the insurance check, and all that stuff was gone. But in the wreckage of all that stuff down there, there was a Strat a Dave Grissom uh, PRS that had been signed by, it was a gold top, been signed by Buddy Guy mm -hmm. and a Klein that all belonged to Dave Grissom. He had a, a storage locker down there. And I, I was down there, we were basically triaging guitars. Right. Joe Glazer was down there saying, because everything was soaked. Yeah. And he said, here's what's gonna happen, this stuff swells, and then over the next few days when it dries out, it'll contract, but the metal doesn't. So it'll contract around that metal and it'll, it'll basically split a headstock 
or anywhere where there's metal, it'll basically you run the risk of it splitting the guitar up. Yeah. So I offered to take because I'd worked with Dave in the studio. He's a wonderful person. I offered to take his guitars, and I, I brought them back here. Uh, got a six pack of Coronas, and sat here and took those guitars apart. Took every piece of metal off his. Grissom that had been signed by Buddy Guy. He had just done a tour with Buddy. Yeah. So he wanted that saved. And also this custom strat that he had had built. Took every piece of metal off. Uh, got his clon out. You know, everything was filthy. Yeah. And and I have a picture of his clon sitting in my bathtub underwater. <laughs> and it took a while for all that stuff to dry out. And you do it slowly over time. And uh, it ended up, every everything lived. And uh, and then in the mail I got this. He sent this for me. So so Dave Grissom yeah. sent, sent you one. He of He sent his, me one of his guitars. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was pretty freaking awesome. That's fantastic. Yeah. So uh, it's classy with the black with the uh, I love ma it. maple binding and yeah. yeah. So it's a you know way of saying thanks. And anytime you know I have to do a solo or something, this is a good go-to guy for that. Yeah. And while we're on the subject of the flood. This guitar, <clears throat> this guitar was in the flood, it's, it, and it's got the big, ugly Evertune bridge on it. The, the one that's on, I've got one with it on a telly that's way nicer looking. The Jaguar is really great looking. This is kind of bulky, but it does such a great job. But this top was just ruined. Yeah, swelled and... Yeah, and I, I took it, you know, I was like... <laughs> you know. And Dave Graff had picked this guitar out for me. And uh, they got it to live and everything. And I've always been a uh, mini humbucker in the neck kind of a guy. So yeah. I'd had, I did that years ago. Yeah, that, that's a neat <clears throat> modification because you get the, uh, you know, the kind of brighter, more focused uh, yeah. magnet, you know, sound of the, uh, of the, the, the smaller pickup. Yeah, I've done yeah. this to, uh, to a few of my last Pauls where I've got a yeah. mini in the neck yeah. and then the full humbucker in the back. So did you have to have this, uh, this pickup surround made or? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And uh, yeah. The, the guys down at Glazer did it. But um, I, I wanted a Les Paul that had the Evertune in it yeah. for that speed factor on sessions. Yeah. And I took Joe three Les Pauls. And I said, all right, out of these three, which one do we hack up? And he said, man, definitely do the flood one. It's already been, how can you hurt it any more than it already has? Yeah. So we stuck it in there. And that's the one I used on the Letterman show with Chris Cornell and, and on the recording of, of the song we did. And it's, it's, it's been a, a hoss. Oh, yeah. some old... Uh, <laughs> gaff tape. <laughs> some old gaff tape from years ago. I mean, it, it still looks great, though. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know... I had yeah. a Duesenberg, uh, the John Platania model or whatever. Okay. It was underwater. I have a picture of me pouring water out of it, yeah. out, of, yeah, out of the hole. Yeah. Uh, all the paint popped off the neck, the back of the neck. Uh -huh. But everything else was perfect. Yeah. So they sprayed the neck and went on, yeah. like nothing happened. Continues. Yeah. Yeah. But I've still got some things that I haven't had rebuilt from the flood, and it's been eight years because yeah. I'm afraid they're not going to come back. Yeah.
that, now let's talk amps. Okay. Now I've got to preface this by, you know, you've got all these amps here. Yeah. And then tell us about this ingenious invention that you came up with that you actually have a patent on. All right. So I've always, uh, I'll, instead of buying a clone of something, I'll try to buy the real deal and investigate why is that, why did this, why is a Marshall in the history of Sonic, you know, the Sonic palette. Um, so I've ended up with a bunch of amp heads over the years, and I love them. It's just I needed a quick way to be able to get around them, you know, to, to be able to use them. If if you can own gear, but I wanted to be able to use gear. You right. Know? And I do programming for uh, Native Instruments. They have a program called Guitar Rig, and it's all virtual where you just click and, hey, there's a Marshall, and, hey, there's a microphone, and, hey, I'm moving the mic. Yeah. And I, I really was intrigued by that, and I wanted to be able to quickly get around to these different amps. Uh, like I said to you earlier, you, you can walk in someone's studio, and they'll have some cool amp. Yeah. And it's sitting there, and you're like, hey, that's a cool amp. And they'll go, yeah, it really sounds good. You know? yeah. <laughs> but... but <laughs> But no one picks it up and puts it up. No one it picks up. it because you have to pick it up, yeah. find a place for it, yeah. mic it up. So you have to take the mic off of something else. Right. And it may not be right. So you use the thing that covers a bunch of bases instead. Right. You know? So you use your deluxe reverb or tweed deluxe yeah. or something like that instead of pulling another. Yeah. Exactly. So I wanted to be an amp user and yeah. not just an, an amp collector. Yeah. Uh, but the Marshall I bought up in Albany, New York, God, ages ago. In, in fact, uh, the day I bought that, it was at Lark Street Music, I think was the name of the place up in Albany. Uh, that night, I met Jack Nicholson, the actor. Yeah. Uh, he was, this was when they were shooting this movie, this was ages ago, shooting a movie called Ironweed okay. with Meryl Streep. And uh, I was with Gary Chapman. We were opening for Bruce Hornsby on his very, Bruce's first tour. Yeah. With mandolin rain and that's yeah. just the way it is, all that. George Marinelli playing guitar. Yeah, George Marinelli was yeah. on guitar. Yeah. Who was my neighbor for a good while here in Nashville. But I found that <clears throat> and it's been with me ever since, you know. Yeah. The deluxe reverb, it was originally in the cabinet. The cabinet is, is uh, in my amp room. The head is up here. It was in Houston. A friend of mine, Chuck Sugar, had it forever. And I would, every, every few years I'd call him up or I'd hit him with an email. Hey, still got that amp? Yeah. yeah. Interested in selling it? No. Okay. <laughs> a few years later, you know, I, yeah. I, I hammered him over the years and he finally said, okay, I'll sell it. Yeah. Um, this I bought from Book, from Bukovac. He got it from Brent Mason. Uh, bought this from Book, the Matchless, 94 Matchless, I think. Uh, this custom audio head was one of the first custom audio heads when they first came out, and it was underwater. It, it was down there, and it came back to life, as did this 90s Vox AC-15. Uh, it, it was underwater, came back to life. This is the electronics out of the AC-30 that I have in my amp room. It's a 65, okay. and it's a top boost. It's very bright, it's very wanting to get it, but it's, it's got that chimey sound that you just yeah. get from the Vox. You know. And I found that on the, year, uh, on the road years and years ago. So I wanted to be able to get around to these different amps quickly. Um, so here in my studio, uh, I, I found a, a spot 
to have an amp room built where it's pretty much soundproof. And I had all these cabinets in there, and I thought, okay, um, just like in guitar rig, I'll have three mics on a cabinet, you know, and that way I can get uh, differences in sound. And um, so 10 cabinets, three mics, that's 30 mics. Yeah. And I wanted ribbons on that. Ten, buying 10 ribbon mics? Yeah, that's a fortune. That's a fortune. And you'd also have to have some elaborate patch bay and stuff. And so I was trying to figure out, well, how do I do this? How do I get around, you know, to all these amps? And uh, it wasn't until I was like, you know, let's, I'm just going to pretend I own one microphone. And I want to mic up 10 different cabinets. You know, how do I go about doing that? And, you know, and I was like, how do I, and then finally I realized, well, okay, I'll get some kind of motorized thing and stick a mic on it. And I remember reading about Billy Gibbons having an amp cabin in the studio where all his amps faced in and he had one mic in the middle. Yeah. I thought, okay, I'll kind of do a little bit of that concept, but I'll have the mic on this motor. I just got to find a motor that works right. And I searched around and found, uh, I would buy motors off the internet and they'd come in. I'd go, yeah, this will work. Didn't work. I'd just chunk it. Found a, a pair of servo motors that you can use. Uh, and it's slow enough and programmable. Uh, I was able to design up a joystick controller. So what I have now in my amp room are all these speaker cabinets in a circle, one big yeah. circle. Servo motor is in the exact middle. All these, uh, I don't mix amp heads and cabinets. Yeah. This goes to a blonde basement cabinet. This right. goes to a, this six, it's a 67 50 watt plexi. Uh, with a tube rectifier, so it's an export model. It goes to a 71 uh, Marshall 412 with, I think they're gray bulldog, uh, gray, uh, in, uh, gray back, instead of green backs. Right. So it goes, that goes to its dedicated cabinet. The Deluxe Reverb, which I put in this case, goes to its dedicated 112. Right. This goes to a Dr. Z 4-ohm cabinet. It's a 410 cabinet. Okay. Uh, this goes to a 212, another 412. This goes to its respective cabinet, the AC30. Yeah. This goes to the AC15 with a bluebell in it. Yeah. So what I'm able to do, and I don't know if you can, how clearly you can see this, but I can now, I've, and I've got a camera mounted on there. Yeah. So right now, what are you plugged into? To the matchless. Okay, so, you, so the whole time you've been into the matchless. Into and, the matchless. And, into this cabinet. Yep. Yeah. And so you can hear... You can hear the H9 for one, but now that that's off. Oh, wow. It's too bright, you move the mic. That is amazing. Especially yeah. on heavier tones, it yeah. gets because there's yeah. so much rich harmonics. Right. So, uh, give you an example, I'll, I can recall positions on this. So now it's on this custom audio. Let me switch guitars real quick. I use the, uh, the uh, radial JD7 to route the guitar signals to their amp heads. Right. So I can just you know pop these little buttons in and out. 
and uh, that routes it to the respective heads. Yeah. And, uh, let me make sure this is off of standby. <laughs> Because sometimes there's not enough presence on uh, an amp, so rather yeah. than messing with the knobs, rather than pulling up an EQ or whatever for it, I'll move the microphone and find yeah. that spot. Yeah, you're able to do that, and then you're able to change completely change sounds, not just heads into the same cabinet, but you've got different cabinets yeah. and different heads, the, and the proper cabinets to go with each head. Yeah. Yeah. So we're back to the... And again, that was the, that's the matchless. That's the matchless. Back to the custom audio. You know? Yeah. So when I do overdubs, uh, and I learned this from this uh, from a British engineer that did. He and another engineer would kind of flip flop working on the ACDC records. Uh, he didn't do back and black. He did the one before it and the one after it. They would kind of flip flop stuff. Yeah. But I I showed him this and he said when we do the ACDC records he said every every guitar part every overdub gets its own sound. It's like when they get a guitar part. They tear that down, yeah. try a different amp, different miking, different part of the room, yeah. and everything gets its own space. And so you don't get this flattened out one-dimensional thing because a speaker is basically like a comb filter. And I, uh, there's a really great guitar player here in town, Paul Allen. Have you? Yeah. you know Paul? He does the 10... 10 finger orchestra bit thing and he's just a brilliant player uh, he was over here one time and he said well since you've got all these amp heads let's hear all these amp heads through one cabinet and I, so I kind of set them similar Yeah. but you've got the custom audio you've got a 1965 Vox you've got a, a 67 Deluxe Reaver you've got all these different amps and we plugged it into this, this 212 and I'd, he would he would play a little bit. I'd record it. Yeah. I'd you know move uh, I'd move that mic cable. I mean the speaker cable to the next amp head. Yeah. We heard eight different amp heads into the same cabinet. You could you could barely tell them apart. So it homogenized the sound. It's unbelievable. So so much of the sound is part of the, the, the cabinet and the speaker. Yeah. So when I do overdubs for people, a lot of times each overdub is like oh done with that. Yeah. And I'll swap over, let's move, and I'll call up a different amp. So now, so now we're, uh, let's see, what are we going to? Now we're going to the Tweed Deluxe, or we keep going? Well, nope. let's see. Dun, dun, dun. It's the Blonde Basement. <laughs> it's the Blonde Basement cab. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and so, so I use this to switch to the Blonde Basement. Let me see if it's off standby. Yeah. So it's very clean, you can see. Yeah. So, you know, guys will say, ah, my mattress doesn't clean up very well. Yeah. 
Well, then don't use it for those clean parts. You know, get an amp that sounds good clean. Yeah. You know. You know. That, that's so fantastic that you have that, that you can offer when, you know, when someone's sending you tracks. It's like, yeah. You have, you have all these different tonal options that are, they're all legit, right there. they're all proper, and they're right there. Yeah, yeah. And, and and so your overdubs don't just end up sounding like one big guitar, there's a depth to yeah. it because of the cabinets, you know. Yeah, Dif yeah the different speakers, yeah. you know. Yeah. So you've you've also got a, a gadget on your uh, on your Tweed Deluxe yeah. that uh, that's fun, you know, because that that's one where the amp is actually out there. The the head, you know, the head isn't separated. Yeah, out. the electronics are out there. Yeah, and it's this is this is where it gets admittedly a little geeky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if it wasn't geeky enough, if it already. wasn't geeky enough already. Yeah. All right, so let's go to the Tweed Deluxe. Da 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 da. Thank you. We're here. Yeah. All right, so the electronics are down there. Yeah. The all the other amps, all the electronics are up here. Speaker right. cabinets are in the amp room. Right. But I didn't want to separate the Tweed Deluxe out, and I, and I have a Tweed Champ down there, and then yeah. a little Marshall Studio thing from the 80s. Yeah. But that meant that uh, I would have to foot it down there to yeah. turn the knobs and stuff. Yeah. So I started doing stuff like, if I'm going to be geeky, <laughs> let's be totally geeky. Yeah. So I found there's uh, radio control parts and stuff. Mm -hmm. I found these motors that people use for sailboats, for reeling in the sails, and they don't do a full 360, but they do enough of a range for what I need for right. a guitar, you know, for, for my amps. So... I built it where the motor is mounted over the knob. I've got Velcro, one side of the Velcro on the motor. The other side of the Velcro, I just stick on the knob, the old yeah. tweed knob. And it's mounted over that. I found a board that translates MIDI to servo voltage. And so I can use a MIDI controller to control the little servo guy. Yeah. So... And I probably wouldn't ever use it that gained up. Yeah, but that's that's up to twelve or something like that. Yeah. So, like, I can I can move it more towards the center where it's brighter. Yeah. Turn the volume down. Make sure the tone is up, and I get it. Then, if I want to gain it up, I'll usually move it to where it's a little bit darker. Turn up that volume. Turn down the tone. But it's that combination of the tone control, the volume. Otherwise, without the mic mover, it would be too, it'd be. And without this tone guy, it'd just be too a bit too raspy sounding. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I've also got that on the uh, the champ. <laughs> <laughs> sit here and do this all day. <laughs> and I do. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's the geeky, the geekier side of things right there. Yeah. Yeah. That that is awesome. Well Jerry, thank you so much for letting us invade your home. Absolutely. Your home studio. And uh thank you for, for letting us uh you know thank you for telling your story. Yeah. Oh one last thing. This guy also have a Leslie down. And this is this Leslie was made during the World War II where they couldn't use magnets, so it's an electromagnet woofer. The best Leslie effect is a Leslie, you know yeah. that.
This has been an audio presentation by TrueTone. TrueTone.com.